This is The Guardian. It's Autumn Statement Day. The government wants us to believe that the economic mess is nothing to do with them. There may be a recession made in Russia, but there is a recovery made in Britain. They've been in power for 12 years, and the Labour Party isn't letting anyone forget. All the country got today was an invoice for the economic carnage that this government has created. Never again can the Conservatives be seen as the party of economic competence. Whether Jeremy Hunt's announcements will actually keep people afloat and stop public services falling over will only really become clear over the next few months. But one political question hangs over everything. Can a government oversee a political and economic crisis as big as this and avoid a huge defeat at the next election? I'm John Harris and you're listening to Politics Week in the UK for The Guardian. Joining me today are The Guardian's political editor, Pippa Creerar, who's uh, in the bustling Guardian office at Westminster and the Guardian columnist Raphael Bear. Hello to you both. Hello, John. Hi. First of all, the framing of the government's financial predicament in Jeremy Hunt's statement uh, was all about a global crisis, a supposedly global crisis. There was nothing, I think I'm right in saying, about the huge mistakes of the so-called mini-budget. Let's hear what Jeremy Hunt said on that score. The Office for Budget Responsibility confirms global factors are the primary cause of current inflation. Most countries are still dealing with the fallout from a -a once-in-a-century pandemic. The furlough scheme, the vaccine rollout and the response of the NHS did our country proud. But they all have to be paid for. The lasting impact on supply chains has made goods more expensive and fuelled inflation. And this has been worsened by a made-in-Russia energy crisis. Uh, Pippa, let's go to you first. What was your response to that budget, both the framing of it and the details of it? Well, since black holes are kind of the term that we're using at the moment, it felt there was a bit of a black hole in his response because there wasn't anything in it about the Liz Truss era and the damage that her mini budget did to the economy, even though we know from various calculations that there was tens of billions of pounds worth of pain inflicted, which now, of course, makes it even harder for the government to try and uh, and fill. Um, it also felt that they were um, blaming all, all the focus on the global headwinds. Jeremy Hunt kept talking about a Russian-inspired recession and very little about the fact that the Tories have been handling, running the economy for the past 12 years. And inevitably, that itself will have an impact on, on uh, lack of growth, on inflation um, and various, various other economic measures. Uh, Labour hasn't been shy in making the point that if you compare our growth with other developed countries, we're bottom of the chart, 38th out of 38, I think was the figure that Rachel Reeves used based on based on OECD, uh, OECD figures. So, you know, yes, of course, there are big international global factors with, with Ukraine and the pandemic, which obviously applied globally. But there are also things that happened at home which they were quite keen just to skate over. Yeah, I mean, uh, Pippa's absolutely right. And you can understand politically why Jeremy Hunt's not going to say, well, I'm imposing this quite 
uh, well, actually very tough, brutal fiscal settlement on the country, uh, essentially because the parameters of what I can do have been defined by a market response to uh, a Tory predecessor and a Tory chancellor who essentially blew up Britain's credibility uh, as a developed economy. And now we have to behave like a sort of developing market economy uh, uh, that's got um, financial markets breathing down our neck all the time. And that's the that's the reason why the screws are being tightened. I mean, obviously, we know, we know since 2010, anyone who actually follows the fiscal argument that these are choices that you make, that you can set your fiscal rules, uh, you, you can sort of generally mark your own homework in terms of uh, how fast you pay off your debt, how much of a deficit you want to run, if the rest of the world thinks you're a serious country with a serious economy, uh, and you've got some kind of growth trajectory. Now, we don't have those things, and we don't have that credibility because of Liz Truss. I mean, all those other global things are a factor. Um, and that, I think, you know, going back to, to Pippa's point about the black hole, for me, it's, it's felt it's like a time warp. I mean, it essentially seems that Jeremy Hunt was projecting a kind of orthodox post-Thatchatoryism, fiscal discipline with, you know, a little bit of the broadest shoulders must do the hardest work. Uh, quite a quite a lot of George Osborne in there. He, you know, he name-checked uh, Nick Gibb and Michael Gove as ministers who had done good work. I mean, it's as if basically the period from June the 23rd, 2016 to Liz Trust was simply being airbrushed out of the equation. But suddenly, mysteriously, everyone's a whole lot poorer. Uh, and well, well, who did that? You know, that's the question. Who did that, Jeremy? And um, whether it's austerity 2.0 or not, the tone of it compared to austerity 1.0 and George Osborne in 2010 was markedly different. I mean, his message then was essentially, I suppose, we've been living beyond our means. Now it's time to slash the state. Whereas Hunt was saying words to the effect of this is very difficult, it's not our fault, and don't worry, we're nice people. Yeah, I think the the politics of it are just different to the extent that because we haven't had the growth and the productivity and the revenue, it's just so much harder to let public sector cuts do the heavy lifting on fiscal consolidation. It has to raise taxes, and that's a different political and economic frame. And the other aspect of it, of course, is that the public sector just doesn't have the capacity for more cuts, so having been slashed over the last 10 years by austerity and then successive Conservative governments, there is very little room for manoeuvre when it comes to cutting some of those big budgets. So they were very keen to make the point that this is not austerity point two. Yes, there will be cuts, but they've been they've been back-ended until after the next election. So, you know, do they actually ever happen? That would be an interesting one to watch with the markets because this whole package, as Raf says, was about convincing the markets that the government is, is running a tight ship fiscally. And if they view spending cuts as part of that overall package, then those spending cuts might not happen. So, you know, how's that going to play out? That's a weird paradox there, isn't there, that you sort of signal your credibility by saying we're, we're going to be fiscally virtuous um, at a point when actually a sort of a rational appraisal situation means you might not even be the government anyway. Uh, it's still there. But then that's that's true of so many of these things. Exactly. Exactly. So um, let's talk about the contrast between uh, £55 billion of what Jeremy Hunt called consolidation, but only by 2028, and the details or the headlines really of this uh, statement in the short term. Teachers and nurses, I thought it was very telling, were mentioned in the opening seconds of his speech. Social care, he says, will get more money over the next two years. NHS funding will increase by £3.3 billion a year. Schools will get an extra £2.3 billion a year in 2023 and 2024. Now, the last two are actually pretty small rises, well below inflation. Let's remind ourselves that the current shortfall in the NHS budget is put at around £7 billion. But you've also then got increasing pensions and benefits in line with inflation. So that's what they want to 
that's what you want. They want us to take away from this. Uh, after all that initial briefing about how this was going to be an apocalyptically austere budget, that they're nice people and they're and they're they're giving the public services money. Pippa, you've just come back from the lobby briefing. Was that the sort of messaging you were getting there? Yeah, I mean, they obviously want to get this message across that they're compassionate conservatives. But as you rightly identified, John, a couple of billion pounds extra for schools and three point five billion pounds extra for for health over the next couple of years might mean that they manage to continue crawling along schools and hospitals in the way that they are now. But it certainly isn't some sort of big bonanza that's going to that's going to you know plug all the gaps and and um, address all their problems. I think that um, it, what you're going to see across the rest of the public sector is that while spending is going to stick at the the spend the last spending review levels because of inflation that still puts pressures on departments internally so they won't have as much disposable income if you like to to uh, fund things like public sector pay rises or you know any any other really um, front facing services and they're going to have to make some really difficult choices so we had a, in this briefing we had a lot of reminders that actually departments are going to face really tough calls before we even get to the point where the big cuts come in um, in the last two years of this, this sort of five-year period. That's important, isn't it, Raf? So contrary to the idea that the pain's coming further down the line, which I'm sure will be echoed in a lot of the coverage of this, the point is the pain from this from this statement is real in the short term. Departmental spending will be held at 3%, and inflation, as we all know, is currently 11%. So there will be cuts to services, jobs, and, and below inflation pay for the public sector and so on. You know, it's grim. Exactly. As, as Pippa says, look, look, the, the unprotected departments, uh, for want of a better word, uh, are, are experiencing at institutional level exactly the same gruesome cost of living squeeze uh, that everyone else is feeling. So, you know, at, mo- at its crudest point, you know, um, schools and hospitals also get heating bills, you know, so everything that costs more costs more for them. And so if their budgets aren't going up in line with inflation, that's that's a massive cut in the service delivery. Uh, and ultimately, I mean, you know, I, I think we're going to come on to this this broader question of, of the sort of general disposable income that everyone's going to have in the next couple of years. But the charts on that are terrifying. I want to bring in Pippa a bit about the levels of anxiety among conservative politicians about what was in the, the instantly sort of famous, much commented on, um, Office of a Budget Res- Responsibility report today. Real household disposable income per person, says the OBR, will fall by more than 7% over the next two years, the biggest fall on record, which will take people's incomes down to 2013 levels. That today is the most significant political fact. It is, and it's backed up by the uh, Treasury's own distributional analysis, which shows that half of British households will be worse off next year. Now, you'll have noticed if you watch the budget, and I was there in the chamber watching it, that the Tory benches, who are, who are normally wild during a, a budget, lots of cheers and you know shouting out and that waving of order papers and all the rest of it, were deathly quiet. I mean, it was funereal. There was only really a very small handful of occasions where they kind of mustered up a sort of half-hearted cheer for anything that Jeremy Hunt announced. Um, and the and the bottom line is, is because they know that while we've talked a little bit about the pain to come, there's actually pain now. It's not just pain tomorrow, it's pain now. The, those OBR forecasts about real household disposable incomes, which you mentioned, in addition to massive tax rises, which are going to take the tax burden to the highest level since the end of the Second World War. Obviously, energy prices are still going up as well. So families and households are really going to struggle. And Tory MPs know that. 
I read an amazing set of numbers yesterday, which said that at present the basic rate of tax kicks in on earnings over twelve thousand five hundred or thereabouts, and the higher rate kicks in at just over fifty thousand pounds a year. Now the government wants to extend the freeze on those rates until twenty seven twenty eight, which will drag millions of people into higher rates of taxation. And I read that someone on a sixty thousand pound a year salary could see their income tax bill rise over the next five years by about fifteen grand. That's an electoral suicide for the Conservative Party, isn't it, Raf? Well, there's two elements to this. One is, oh, yes, if you make people poorer in the period immediately running up to an election, they might be less likely to vote for you. Uh, and the other one is sort of doctrinally, Conservative MPs have, you know, they, 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 they haven't taken the sort of Liz Truss episode as a rebuke to anti-tax monomania, right? So they don't like the fact that that was politically disastrous what happened and, and, and we've discussed what a mess the Truss and Quarteng mini-budget was. But the actual core belief that it is something that Conservatives should always be in the business of cutting taxes and that is essentially uh, the, the magic bullet in any economic situation is still quite a mainstream view in the Conservative Party. So for them to sit there, as, yeah, as, as Pippa described, you know, on the on the benches, listening to a Conservative Chancellor raising taxes, you know, for pretty much everyone. Um, obviously, they find that immensely uncomfortable. And add on to that, you know, the twelfth, the thirteenth year of an incumbency, uh, where there's so much grievance and resentment has built up, uh, and you know, they rejected Jeremy Hunt a couple of times to be leader of their party. Uh, Rishi Sunak wasn't their first choice. You know, it's going to be very, very hard for them to really row in behind this. And whatever the message is, to, to repeat it on the doorstep, even if they think it might work, I just think they're disinclined to be particularly loyal in what's going to be an incredibly volatile time. That level of pain translates into political volatility. It's almost certain. Pippa, you talked about sort of rising levels of anxiety and this sort of encroaching sense of doom on the Conservative benches. I mean, there's one sort of question which feeds into that, which I think is just hanging over this government now, which is that it's been in power, albeit under, what, four different prime ministers, for 12 years. And what have they got to show for it? I mean, again, that's a central sort of point in, in politics right now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, and, and if you ask them that, they'll say, well, look, we've got the big calls right, and we'll talk about the vaccine programme and delivering Brexit. Now, Brexit, I think the polls in recent days have suggested that growing numbers of people feel that actually that wasn't the right decision to have taken at the time. So I'm not sure that's going to be such a, a popular issue on the doorstep um, come the next election. And the pandemic by then, frankly, will feel a bit like history when people are really struggling to make ends meet and visiting food banks and feel that their pay has been restrained or cut in real terms. Um, it's going to be incredibly difficult in the 18 months of two years that we've got in the run-up to the election for the Tories to try and offer any glimmer of hope. And, you know, unless they can do that, unless they can show that there's a path through this, in addition to sort of justifying their existence for the last 12 years, really, um, then they're going to be in a really tight spot. Yeah, I'd add to that that the legacy of the pandemic was was soiled by Partygate for the Tories. John, you actually wrote uh, about this very well. You made the the, the point that you know the, the, just imagine the, the scenario where they tried to have some memorial service for for victims of the pandemic, and what is Boris Johnson going to be there? Is 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 Matt Hancock going to be there? You know, <laughs> with a gob full of kangaroo anus. You know, it's just it's absurd. Uh, and unfortunately, you know, the one of the biggest tragedies I think you know of of that period, the last few years, is that the 
the very obvious appetite for both political and economic solidarity that was expressed at the start of the pandemic, you know, the the, the clapping for um, the NHS and and frontline workers, you know, it, it comes up and again and again. There is, I think, a very strong feeling that the country is receptive to uh, a political argument about uh, solidarity through economic redistribution and sharing resources, and yet the, the conservatives they they ideologically they find it really hard to tap into that and just morally and politically they've just they've they've run a mile from it they've they've squandered any opportunity for that the thing that that um sunak and hunt are obviously trying to do is to wriggle free of their own record the idea that this is a this is a new regime and it, it has integrity and probity and competence unlike johnson and it's not mad unlike Truss and and Quateng, all right that's it really right do you think there's anything in that? I wonder sometimes, you know. I mean, I knew people in the Thatcher period who, who said, oh, well, I'd vote Tory if Michael Esseltine was in charge. The idea that that these, on the face of it, to people like us, quite cosmetic differences, that might actually count for a lot with, with quite a lot of voters. What do you think, Pepper? Well, I think there's a reason why the Conservative Party has been one of the most successful political operations on earth for so long, and that is their ability, despite their ideological ties to recreate themselves, to recast themselves um, so frequently. And we saw that most evidently recently with Boris Johnson, who kind of managed to spin this narrative that in 2019, that he was a completely different, um, he was offering something completely different from what had gone before. And it was kind of like a fresh broom. And that helped him secure his massive majority. Now, I think Rishi Sunak's going to struggle a bit with that, not least because he's not as compelling for right or wrong, uh, political character as Boris Johnson, who probably doesn't have the political nose, but also because he has set himself this high bar of having a government um, which is which at every level displays uh, integrity, um, accountability and professionalism. And what have we seen in the last three weeks? We've seen him firefighting, uh, first of all, over Suella Braverman and whether she had possibly uh, breached security rules um, with some of her emails and then the, her handling of Manston and ignoring legal advice. Then we were on to Gavin Williamson, who, you know, faces these awful bullying allegations and now we're on to Dominic Raab. So he's like firefronting on that front. And I kind of feel that he's been, a, it's been a slight hostage to fortune for him in the way that Back to Basics was for John Major, that now everybody in his government that falls below those high standards, um, is going to have to be, is going to have to be dealt with. So, moving on and recreating himself and recasting the narrative is going to be even harder for him as a result of that. Okay, let's pause here for a minute and then we're going to talk about the Labour Party and what it can offer by way of an alternative. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Out now. Bye. Mehr Nachhaltigkeit durch Digitalisierung. Diesen Weg gehen Stefanie und Stefan von der Bäckerei Geisenhofer gemeinsam mit ihrer Steuerberatung und den digitalen Lösungen von DATEV. Seitdem wir uns mit dem Thema Digitalisierung stärker befassen, können wir einfach Ressourcen sparen. Wir haben früher unsere Kassenschnipsel jeden Tag händisch eingebucht. Heutzutage laden wir sie digital hoch und sie kommen direkt bei der Steuerberatung an. 
Erfahren Sie mehr zum Thema jetzt auf gemeinsambessermachen.de. Welcome back. Thanks for still being there. Let's hear, first of all, as we consider the Labour Party's place in the politics of all this and its response to the budget statement, what the Shadow Chancellor, Rachel Reeves, said in response to Jeremy Hunt. I thought she was quite good today. This is one of her more feisty moments. Inflation spiralling, growth plunging, living standards falling. Mr Speaker, Britain is a great country with fantastic strengths. But because of this government's mistakes, we are being held back. What people will be asking themselves at the next election is this. Are me and my family better off with a Conservative government? And the answer is no. Okay, so what she's just said there um, ties back into what we discussed just before the break, this question of, of 12 years and what exactly voters have to show for it. But Jeremy Hunt clearly has tried to set a political trap here for the Labour Party in putting in place these spending restraints that will kick in after the election, he hopes. He will therefore be able to say to the Labour Party, are you going to stay within these tram lines or do you want to spend more money than we do? And if so, how are you going to finance it? And then he conjures up the eternal spectre of the financially irresponsible, sorry, there's no money left, Labour Party. Raf, what do you think the Labour Party's response to that's going to be? Well, it is, I think, broadly a political vulnerability, because, as you say, that is one of the sort of macro conditions of British politics that, you know, the Tories play economic arguments on easy mode and Labour seem to have a, a sort of steeper gradient to climb um, in terms of making that argument. Um, uh, but from what I understand, you know, the Labour view is is that they can really lean into the economic argument and in exactly the terms that Rachel Reeves sets out, which is to say, um, well, just ask yourselves, country, you know, who, whether you feel better off and whether it's time for a change in new management. And I think that, the, you know, essentially getting the benefit of the fact that or trying to wring some benefit out of the fact that Keir Starmer is basically quite a boring uh, managerial type person. Rachel Reeves, similarly, I, I don't think they have another option really other than to to be that the sort of alternative management team, but who are just more trustworthy in public services. But hold on. Does that mean when they're asked... After the election, would you just increase departmental spending by 1%, which is what Hunt said? The answer will therefore be to sort of bat that away and just not answer it and just say, 12 wasted years, are you better off? Or are they likely to say, yes, we would stick within those spending limits for a bit, like Blair and Brown did? What do you think is the most likely Labour answer to that question? Because they'll be asked it a lot. Yeah, it's a hard question. I mean, the short answer is, I don't know. I mean, in judging by the positions they've taken so far, they would lean more towards the sort of Blair Brown matching Ken Clark, uh, this sort of position from 96, 97 to a one that says, well, you know, actually, we, we don't need to accept Tory budget and borrow, you know, you know, austerity is basically about made up fiscal rules and we'd have different ones. But I don't know. Pepper, that means you that essentially you vote Labour and the pain continues. Well, I think what you what they will say now, if you ask them, is that they're not in a position to make those sorts of decisions right now because we're 18 months, two years out from a general election. And as we've seen from the last, you know, I don't even need to go back months, let alone years, last few weeks can have such a sort of uh, dramatic effect on the economy that it's, and we live in such volatile times that it's very difficult to see in 18 months, two years time where we'll be. I mean, hopefully, 
interest rates will have calmed down, inflation will have halved, energy prices will have leveled off and you know the country will be starting to look economically towards a brighter future. So, you know, at that point they may want to to sort of double down on their fiscal credibility and say, yes, well, we'll stick to this 1% rise. Or they may be in a position where they say, look, you know, come on, we're in a better position. The outlook's better. We've got our big growth, long-term growth plan. And actually we can afford to spend a bit more or to prioritise what we what we focus on. More what they want to do is, as Raf said, is to remind everyone how we got to this point. Because actually one thing that really struck me about this budget is that though lots of it was couched in George Osborne-style language, actually a lot of the content, if you stripped away, stripped away the politics, is something that you can imagine a Labour administration right now delivering. Such so, as, that's interesting. You know, was, so in, investment in, continued investment in big infrastructure, more money for health and schools. On balance, it's fairly progressive if you look at the Treasury's di- distributional analysis. There was support there for the poorest on energy and they stole on one of, of Labour's big ideas on windfall tax. So there were elements of it, I mean, still the, sort of the Osborne language, but there were elements of it which, you know, you could see coming out of, you could hear coming out of Rachel Reeves' mouth. So I think because of that, they need to focus on Whose fault is it that we got to where we got to with the economy? And of course, we'll be firmly pointing the finger of blame at the Conservatives running the country over the last 12 years. Let me ask you this question, Raf. Um, It seems to me that there's an assumption now that talking up the politics of austerity on the Conservatives' part will inevitably not play well with the electorate in the way that Osborne talking up austerity did. But I'm not sure that's true. In the sense that I think there's always a quite sizable part of the electorate who have a sort of essentially masochistic view of government and what it does and the idea that necessarily government should always be trimmed and cut back and we all have to tighten our belts and we're always in danger of wasting resources. There are always people swinging the lead on benefits who got a mention in the statement today. And in that sense, what the framing of what Hunt said, albeit that the pain is loaded till after the election, might be quite politically clever might play well the idea the idea that sooner or later we're going to have to tighten our belts. I think there are a lot of people, and I would include myself in this number, uh, who, like you, sort of broadly positioned somewhere on the left, the liberal left, or whatever, however you ca- characterise it, who are so deeply scarred and traumatised by the systemic failure of, of Labour to win economic arguments on and off for most of our adult lifetimes that they are inclined, we are inclined to take that view. And and I share it. And I think there are. And then you see, uh, certainly in a lot of the places where the Conservatives have won and where people back Boris Johnson, you know, there is, you know, if you take Brexit out of the equation, there is also a foundation of all the things you just described and a sense that, that the extent to which Labour lost the political argument around austerity uh, under Ed Miliband's 2010 to 2015, that period, did a lot of damage and people still blame Gordon Brown and the spending for the global financial crisis. All that is true. But also you do have to look at the data and British attitude survey would appear to show quite clearly that the mood has shifted a bit on that and people actually want will take higher taxes for better public services. I think also it's the case that there's not one viewpoint across the whole country. And one of the challenges that Rishi Sunak faces right now is that his 80 majority is not 80 anymore, 70, whatever it is. His majority right now is based on a coalition of voters from, I'll use the shorthand, blue wall and red wall, although we all hate that shorthand. And, and blue wall voters, so those in sort of traditional southern, maybe more um, socially liberal, but fiscally conservative areas, would prefer to see fewer tax rises and more spending cuts, whereas the bit of the coalition that's in the red wall would prefer the opposite. They think that actually they want to see public services supported. They want to make sure that there's enough cost of living 
help available for the poorest. And they think that those with the broader shoulders should pay for it by their taxes going up. So there's a really difficult balance here, which I'm not sure today we'll have managed to you know, find a sort of way through. I think we're also working with the assumption that we're still going to have this quite strong in England, uh, Labour Tory duopoly, which reasserted itself after all of the Brexit kerfuffle. And just going back to this point that the, the pain, the, the economic pain that's coming down the line, and the likelihood of political volatility means we can't rely on that. And I think it's possible that some of the hard work for Labour in an election might actually be done by splits on the right. As soon as enough Tory MPs start to think they're going to lose anyway, uh, and they start leaning into culture wars to try and shore up their base, and that brings sort of Farage or someone like that back into the game, a split on the right that helps Labour is an entirely feasible thing in the next No, and it's interesting, isn't it? Farage and his people are making menacing noises again. That's been very noticeable over the last sort of week or 10 days. Just in, in conclusion, based on what we've all heard today, What's your sense of what it'll mean for the election and the sort of battle lines between the two parties, notwithstanding what Raf's just said? In other words, what's the next election going to be about? Well, it's all about the economy, stupid, isn't it? So don't call me I think stupid. Ultimately, no, oh, I'm sorry. Um, it you know, twas ever thus though, and now more than ever, when when people will be going into the um, ballot box and marking their their cards and thinking about you know how much money they've had over the last two years, how their households have, have been coping, and the public services, the kids' schools, and the hospitals that they've been relying on, and so on, are bearing up. Are they going to believe that the Conservatives? who have been in charge by that point for 15 years, 14 or 15 years, have done a good job of handling the economy? Or are they going to think, actually, things are worse for me, I am worse off, and public services that I rely on are in a worse shape than they were at the beginning of the time that the Conservatives came in? And if if that is the case, if, the, if Rishi Sunak and the Tories don't manage to turn it around, as I think it's going to be really, really hard for them to do, then I think it's highly likely that people will think, well, you know what, actually, let's give the other lot a chance and see if they can if they can deliver something different. I would add to that that the increasingly presidential or, or frequently presidential element of British politics, I, I think a Sunak-Starmer contest would have been quite difficult for Keir Starmer a couple of years ago. I think now, especially given what we've seen over the last, just the first few weeks of Sunak being in Downing Street and for things that reasons that Pippa mentioned earlier, um, Rishi Sunak could look very weak. Uh, in a couple of years' time, trying to manage an angry, embittered, disorderly, unruly Conservative Party. Keir Starmer's grip on his party is very strong. Arsenal at the top of the table. He's feeling confident. He's singing because he's winning. And I think actually in a presidential contest, you would also you also might just about at the moment fancy Keir Starmer over Rishi Sunak. But obviously that could change. And what today leaves completely in place, utterly unchanged, it seems to me, is the sort of centrality to politics now and the next election of a sort of archetypal political question. And I, as Pip has just said, I don't see any way the government gets out of it, which is, are you better off than you were 12 years ago? And and how how on earth do the Tories wriggle their way out of that one? I don't want to sound complacent as if I think the Conservatives losing, losing power at the next election, next election is inevitable, but it is starting to feel like that on that basis. Yeah, I, I mean, it, it, it's 12 years a long time. You can't defy gravity. The way you defy gravity generally politically is if you get a, a great surge of, of sort of nationalist momentum which is how Nicola Sturgeon's defied political gravity for a long time in Scotland and it's how Boris Johnson defied it in the way that Pippa described earlier over Brexit and and the Tories don't get another go at that I mean they will try they will really really try because that's all they'll have but I think that will just divide them more than it beats Labour. Pippa to conclude I think it feels like and Tory MPs I think get this that they are running out of road 
and that this is kind of the end game for the Conservatives. Now, of course, as we've seen in the last couple of years, major events can happen which turn things around. So you can never assume anything. But where we are right now, having just heard Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt's first budget, it looks very much to me like this is going to be very, very hard for them to turn that juggernaut round. So something amazing has happened for the second week running. Assuming most of our listeners are of a broadly sort of left liberal inclined disposition, we've ended on a note of at least qualified hope. Thank you for joining us today, Raphael Bear and Pippa Creera. Thanks very much for having us. Thank you. Thanks for listening out there. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, make sure you subscribe to Politics Week the UK wherever you get your podcast. This episode was produced by Frankie Toby. The music is by Axel Cacoutier. And the executive producers are Maz Ebtahaj and Nicole Jackson. This is The Guardian. 